Well, amen. Good to be with you guys this morning. What a cool space, huh? Man, we are so grateful. Uh, the guy who, uh, um, the, the previous owner of this space, his name was Sean. He owned a photography store. He did so much work to turn this place into a cool spot. The, the, the most interesting thing is that uh, Sean's a Christian as well, and he was really excited about a church getting to use the space after he was done with it. And so all his hard work in that is going to further the kingdom of God. And so he was excited about that, and so are we. Uh, I'm looking forward to being with you guys again this morning, opening God's Word again with you. Um, If you hear lots of random noises, this building is full of very, very random noises, like buzzes or water running. Don't worry about it. It's just what it is. It's going to be fun, right? (laughs) Nothing's going to fall on you, I think. I think we're good. I think we're good. Um, but we are really grateful for this place, and just uh, 100% of the credit for that goes to God, doing that, the amount that we pay in rent, the, the way that we got it, all of those things are just, in, are just things that only God could get credit for doing, and so um, and I just want us to, I just want him to be the one that gets the credit for all of that. So uh, this morning, uh, not only are we in a new building, but we're in a new series. We're going to be taking a look over the next course of the next eight weeks, going through just verse by verse through the, the book of Colossians. And uh, at the heart of the book of Colossians, the main theme of the book of Colossians is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. And so uh, why Colossians? Why are we spending the next eight weeks doing that? Well, I'll give you a, a few good reasons. One, uh, life's a little bit crazy, and uh, I've worked on this before. Uh, so that will be helpful in allowing me to not lose my mind over the course of the next eight weeks. Uh, second, uh, we just got done doing a few shorter series, a little more topical series, going through the mission and vision of the church, as well as taking a look at the five solas of the Reformation. But uh, we really want to make sure we just got back into studying just verse by verse, going through a book of the Bible. And uh, that's really the norm here at River City. And the reason why that is so important to us, the reason why that is the norm, um, is because uh, we just want to care a lot more about what God's Word has to say than what I have to say or something that I come up with. And so uh, we uh, regularly, intentionally spend time just going through books of the Bible so that our time together would be informed uh, and transformed by God's Word primarily. And then the, the third reason is just simply this. Colossians is a really practical book about what it means to be followers of Jesus in the world today. Uh, how timeless the truths of God's word are as they apply to our lives. Solomon, uh, the wisest man of all history, he was really right when he said that nothing under the sun is new. The same things that the church in Colossae struggled with are the same things that the church in every age has struggled with. And so we're excited to see how God will challenge and transform our hearts as we sit under the authority of his word, as we're transformed by it, as it was good news to the Colossians 2,000 years ago. We trust that it will be good news to us as well. So in light of that, let's dive in. We're going to pray, asking God that he'd be at work transforming our hearts and our time together, and then uh, we'll read God's word and, and see where it goes. So God, we are so grateful for you. We are so thankful for our new space and for this building. God, but most of all, we're just grateful that you would um, reveal yourself to us in your word. And so we pray as we study that uh, it would be good news to us, that would be at work in transforming our hearts, at work in renewing who we are as your people. And so, God, we just trust that you will uh, make your word good news to us as we study it this morning, and we look forward to that. pray that you'd fill me with your spirit, God, just so that they would be your words and not my own. And, And so, God, we just long that you would speak to us through your word this morning. In your good name, amen. Amen. Well, because uh, the Bible was not written to us, 
In this case, it's a letter written to a church in the city of Colossae nearly 2,000 years ago. We need to do the work of understanding the context of the original writings. Without doing that well, we have a really high likelihood of misinterpreting and then misapplying the text that we're reading. And so it's important for us to find out who, things like who the letter was written to and why it was written and what were the issues that were at hand that were framing the, the writing of the letter. And those things allow us then, once we understand how it was written to the original, readers, how the people who it was written to heard it, then we can do the work of applying the passage to our lives. You see, if we study the Bible and we skip that step, then we're likely to, one, get really confused, uh, two, miss things that God wants to teach us, and three, we're going to end up in a lot of significant theological errors. And so let's do the hard work, let's do the, the context work so that the rest of the book can make sense. Colossians is a book written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote it to the church in Colossae, uh, which is a city kind of in the ancient in the ancient Near Eastern world there, while he was in prison in Rome around AD 61. This is very near the end of his life. At the same time, Paul also wrote three other books. They're called the prison epistles. They're Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, because uh, when you are in prison and you're the Apostle Paul, you finally have time to write the Bible. Um, that man was busy. He was busy. Uh, and so I'm grateful that the Lord allowed him to be in prison so we could write that, those things to us. <laughs> um, so the question is, why did Paul write the letter? What was the, what was the occasion? What was the reason for him writing the letter to the Colossians? And what's interesting about the letter, uh, this letter to the church in Colossae is that Paul himself didn't start this church. We'll meet a guy in our passage today named Epaphras. He's most likely the guy who started the church after hearing Paul preach the gospel in, in Ephesus. But Paul had never met these people before. And one of the things that you'll see in the tone of Paul's writing and in this letter is Paul has this deeply fatherly heart for this church. Even though he doesn't know them, even though he hasn't met them in person, he just deeply cares about them. And you'll see this fatherly heart of compassion and concern for this young body of believers. And and so there's just like this deep love for these people, even though he's not met them. The Colossians were a young church. They knew the gospel, they believed that, but they were being inundated with spiritual ideas from all around them. And scholars have spent lots of years trying to pinpoint exactly what was the one thing that was going on. What was the issue in the church that Paul felt the need to write this letter to? And um, there are many differing opinions, but what's safe to say is that there wasn't just one thing. There wasn't just one issue, there wasn't one heresy, there wasn't one specific thing. Rather, it was the greater culture at large that this young Colossian believers found themselves that was influencing their thinking. One commentator says it best when he says this way. He says, The danger of these young Christians lies not so much in false teachings from outside the boundaries of the Christian church. No, the danger for the enthusiastic young Christian comes from air within the church, teaching that is largely, even emphatically Christian, but this is key, but has been influenced more than it knows by the spirit of the age. It's not that these Christians were so fickle and volatile that they were tempted to just give a fresh hearing to new spiritual religions, but rather it was the syncretistic religious environment in which their church existed that threatened their faith. You see, the spiritual culture in the church at Colossae is a lot like the world that we live in today. Spirituality is kind of seen like a salad bar. You're like, ooh, I really love tomatoes. I'm going to add those. Olives are fantastic. Let me add those in, right? And you just kind of wander around the salad bar, and you kind of pick whatever the parts are that you like, and you add that onto your salad. 
Um, and that's a lot what the spiritual world in Colossae was like. And when you think about it, that's the, a lot about the way our world is like. When you, people look at various different faiths, they, they like some certain aspects and they don't like others, and they kind of just pick and pull the things that they like and merge them into one thing. This is the essence of religious syncretism. It's the merging or the blending of different ideologies or different thinking um, that is called Christianity, but resembles very little of what Jesus actually taught, and instead of just a blurry soup of spiritual muck. For the Colossians, it was the religious rituals of the Jewish community that were speaking into their community, saying that you needed to be circumcised, and you need to celebrate all the Jewish festivals and follow the Jewish calendar in order to please God. It was the vague spiritual worship of the pagan religion, seeking the hidden knowledge of the universe that they believed could only be found through spirits and angels. It was the dualistic Gnostic thinkers advocating that everything physical was evil, and so the Colossians should just cut themselves off from the world entirely and live secluded lives of piety and holiness outside of contact with, real, with, the, with the world around them. And it's easy to think, ooh, it is a good, do- good thing we dodged that bullet 2,000 years ago. Those issues were a problem for some other people at some other church in some other age some long time ago. But the reality is that we here at River City are influenced by the spiritual thinking of the culture around us. And we don't always believe it, neither did the Colossians, but it is constantly knocking at the door of our hearts and minds, and it is slowly seeping into the way that we see the world around us. For us, it's the religiosity of our Midwest town saying that the way to please God is just to go to church and to be good people and to pray more and just to live morally good lives. It's the postmodern thinking that truth is relative and there are many ways to God. Who am I to say that there's just one? It's the unencumbered individualism that is rampant in our society that believes that the church and, and that God and all those things are primarily about us and for us. It's the It's our culture's highest value of self-actualization. Be who you want to be. Do what you want to do. Don't let anyone for a minute tell you not to. It's the glorification of self-sufficiency that causes us to isolate ourselves and live disconnected lives from the world around us rather than living in community and receiving the help of others. It's the isolationist thinking of many Christians who believe that the world is just an evil and scary place And so to remain holy, we just need to seclude ourselves and remove ourselves from every possible influence in the world around us. Do any of those things sound familiar to the issues facing the Colossian church? They they should to us. Because at the core, there are the same issues, just with different clothes on. It's the belief that something other than Jesus is sufficient to save us. It is the belief that something other than him is in supreme authority over all things. One commentator I read says it this way, the churches of Christ can never be immune to the intellectual and spiritual pressures or fashions of their time. I just thought this was so insightful. He says, while we see clearly when we look back at earlier generations, it's less easy for us to recognize this, frankly, in our own times. Hindsight's 2020. It's easy to look back and be like, man, how could these suckers fall for that stuff? But a lot of times we're blind to the issues of our own day, the things that the, the ways that the spirit of the age has seeped into our thinking and to, into our hearts. And you see, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to help give the Colossians, and thankfully us, some guidance and some correction on some of the false ideas and some of the teaching that was creeping into their church. But more importantly, what is so important that we understand about the book of Colossians is that 
Paul is not trying to just correct some specific issues that he sees are wrong. Paul is trying to train these young believers how to discern what is true and what is right and what is good for themselves. He doesn't want them to need to send a letter to him every time something is going wrong or every time some new teaching or some new idea is being taught in front of them or being tried to be peddled. He wants them to know how to discern the truth. And for the Apostle Paul, the thing at the center of all of those issues, the thing that we will keep hearing over and over and over and over again, is that the litmus test of what is true has to do always with the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. That's the litmus test for all of these things. And so we need this letter just as much as the Colossians did. We need this letter just as much as they did. And so my heart as we begin to study it together is that, um, that we would approach it humbly, expecting that the Lord would correct us, expecting that he would train us, expecting that he would uh, reveal in us a blindness that we have to the spirit of the age that we live in. I think the most dangerous thing that we could do as we study the book of Colossians is to think that this was written to someone else. That someone else needed to hear these words. That someone else really needed to listen to this. That it's someone else's issue. Ah, but the invitation as we study it is to ask God, God, would you graciously reveal to us? Would you open our blind eyes to see the ways that the spirit of our age is seeping into our thinking and the way that we view and see you? God is gracious to do that. He longs to do that. And so as we study this book, um, and I just look forward to seeing what God will do in that. This morning, we're just going to tackle the intro. We're in verses 1 through 14. And so let me read that, and then we'll highlight just a few things as we begin our study in Colossians. Colossians 1, verses 1 through 14 reads this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people and the faith... Uh, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that's come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit, growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day that you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You, when you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told you of the love of the Spirit, And for this reason, since the day we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will so that uh, through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. And giving, jo- and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul's letter opens with a prayer. And his prayer at the beginning of this letter here is pretty much sums up his heart for this young church. And it really pretty much sums up the content of the letter that we're going to study over the next eight weeks. He says in verse verse 9, Ever since we heard of you, we've been praying for you. And in his prayer, he says he's asking God for three things. 
we see the first thing in verse 9. We, we ask that he would con- we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. What the heck does that mean? It sounds really spiritual. The knowledge of the will of God given to you by the Spirit. But it kind of sounds vague, so let's break it down. What does that mean? Well, what Paul is saying, what he's articulating, is that he wants the Colossians to know God's will and to have the wisdom to apply those truths to the spiritual matters all around them. Verse 9, again, he says, the knowledge of his will. He's not talking about them knowing God's will in the sense of what job they should take or who they should marry or what house they should buy or what street they should live on. He wants them to understand God's will in the sense of who God wants his people to be, how he wants them to live. He wants them to understand God's will in the sense of their character, in the sense of their identity. We usually think about God's will in the sense of the specific decisions that God wants us to make. Like I said, whether that's what school we should go to or the major that we should pick or what job we should have or what city we should live in. But those things are only a really small part of God's will for us, and they're definitely not the most important part. Paul here is talking about God's will uh, in the sense that he wants, about who he wants us as his followers to be, how he wants us to live, and all of that has to do with the person and the work of Jesus as laid out in his word. See, Paul doesn't want them just to know who they're supposed to be. That's just knowledge. Paul wants them, Paul prays that they would have spiritual wisdom. You see, wisdom... Wisdom is the application of knowledge. I'm a photographer. I know that there are three things that will affect my images. There's the shutter speed, there's the aperture, and, the, and there's the ISO sensitivity. And so I know that those three things, if I adjust those in the right way, that they will produce a really good-looking picture. The problem is, is that I don't really know how to adjust those all the time so that it looks good. There's a lot of pictures I delete. And that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is the fact that I know that those things affect the picture. Wisdom is knowing how to apply them, how to adjust them in such a way to produce what is right. That's what Paul is praying for for these young Christians. He doesn't just want them to know about God. He doesn't just want them to know true things or to have right theology or to have right doctrine. Paul wants them to know what is true so that they would apply it to their lives. They would apply it to every new idea and every spiritual thinking that is tossed their way that comes, that's being taught to them. You see, and the, the truth of what's going on is that God's word doesn't speak to every situation in life specifically. But God's word does speak truth that we need to learn to apply into the situations and the thinking around us. For example, we'll see in a few weeks that the Colossians were being told that the way for them to avoid sin was just to totally cut themselves off from the culture and the society around them. And Paul says, that is really dumb. That's really dumb because if fixing the problem of sin was just you removing yourself from an environment, Jesus did not need to come to die to fix that problem. Jesus did not need to be murdered on the cross in order for you to move out to the country. Paul says, no, Jesus' death was in your place for your sins because sin is in you. It is not around you. Jesus' death frees you from the power of sin, and it's a reliance on his strength in you. That's how you overcome sin, not just avoiding sin or avoiding the appearance of sin in life around you. He says, you'll see in a few weeks, he says, that looks really spiritual, but that's mostly, if not entirely, worthless. 
See, likewise, for us, there are tons of things that we are confronted with in our world that we need to evaluate. How we should think as Christians in, in light of these kinds of things as Christians. How ought we to think about things like sex and marriage? How about money or power or racial issues or politics? All of these things we must learn to apply the truths of God's word to in order to form our opinions about things, in order to inform the way that we look at these things, rather than trying to get the Bible to back up the opinions that we already hold. There are many, many issues in our world that the Bible does not specifically address, but the good news about the truth of God's word is that God gives us all of the truth that we need in order to apply that to every issue in our lives. So Paul prays that these young, this young church, that they wouldn't just have knowledge, but they would have wisdom to apply the knowledge about who God is to every area of their lives. Secondly, verse 10, Paul prays that they would live a life that is worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him in everywhere, that they would bear fruit in good, in good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Paul is praying here that the Colossians wouldn't just know God's will for how they were supposed to live, but he's praying that they would actually live that way. That they wouldn't just know what is right and what is true and what is good, but they would actually live in light of those things. Paul is not concerned that they just sing the right songs at church or have the right theology in their preaching or their teaching. He says he wants them to honor God with their lives. And Paul knows that if they actually live the way that their lives live, they actually, if, Paul knows that if they actually live the way that God was calling them to, that it would bear much fruit. What does that mean to bear fruit? One commentator, I think, just, just really helpfully describes it this. He says, bearing fruit in every good work refers to the reproductive aspect of the Christian's calling. This is not confined to evangelism, but it is never less than that. You see, apple trees, they make more apples. And if an apple tree is not making apples, there's something wrong with it. Because its purpose is to create more apples. That's, just, that's what it does. It's, that's the natural state of an apple tree. Likewise, growth and bearing fruit is the natural state of a Christian living in line with God's will. If you are growing yourselves, but you are also a part of making more Christians, part of the mission of making disciples, that is the natural state of every Christian. It's not like the super spiritual Christians. It's not like the employed Christians. The reproductive nature of all Christians, that's the natural state of who we are. Our default state as followers of Jesus should be reproductive. We are to make more followers of Jesus. It is the very essence of the Great Commission. God's mission for us as his followers is to make more disciples of every tribe and tongue and nation in all of the world. So Paul prays that they would have knowledge of God and wisdom to apply it to their lives. He prays that their lives would actually honor God in the way that they lived that they would bear fruit in the multiplication and in the expansion of the gospel. He says earlier in the letter, right, that the gospel is bearing fruit in all of the world just as it did with you. And then thirdly, in verse 11, Paul prays that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. You see, following Jesus in Colossae was not an easy task. It was not for wimps or slackers. You needed to put on your adulting pants if you were going to actually do it. Following Jesus was hard then, and following Jesus is hard now. That hasn't changed. And that's why Paul wants the Colossians to know that he prays every day that God would give them his power so that they could live for him even though it's hard. 
You see, God wants us to live holy lives. God wants our conduct and our character to honor him. He wants it to be pure. He wants us to stand out from the culture that we live in. But what is critically important, what you cannot miss, what is of like preeminent value as we think about this, is the truth that God is the one who empowers the obedience he requires. God is the one who empowers the obedience that he requires. If you believe that God just wants you to be obedient and that the, the, the way you do it is just by sucking it up and trying harder, then what you will get is religion and bitterness. That's the only result of that. But if you believe that God's called you to obedience and to a life that honors him and that he went to the cross to die in your place for your sins so that he might fill you with his spirit so that he might live that life through you, and that becomes like this, this life-giving, like that becomes something you long for. It's this realization that God's not asking you to do something that he's not empowering you to also do. He's not just like a boss that is like trying to make you fail so he can fire you. He's not just like a father who is just like trying to teach you something the hard way. God is a loving father who is, wants to empower the obedience that he requires, that he commands. And what happens is, as Paul says, the later end of verse 12, he says, that produces in you joy. That produces a humble joy because you realize that Jesus has done everything for you. See, Paul closes his prayer with a reminder to the Colossians. This is so good. Paul closes the prayer with a reminder about what enables all of these things to actually happen and where the motivations for living this way actually comes from. He reminds them about the gospel in verse 12 and 13 and 14. He says, the father has qualified them to share in the inheritance of this people. He has rescued them from the dominion of darkness. He has brought them into the kingdom of the son that he loves. And it's in Jesus that we have the redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. You see, Paul is reminding the Colossians about the good news about the gospel. It's the gospel that produces in the young believers and in all of us lives that are given back to the Lord. You see, Paul's reminding them of the incredible truth that they were unqualified to be God's people. And it wasn't anything that they did, but it was God's work that qualified them. Paul's reminding them that they were in slavery to sin, but that God rescued them when they were hopeless, when they couldn't do anything on their own, God's the one who rescued them. Paul's reminding them that they were condemned as rebels of the king of the universe, but now they've been given the status of dearly loved sons and daughters. And all of that is because of the person and the work of Jesus. Paul beats one drum, and he beats it over and over and over and over again in this letter. And it is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. And it is the best, most life-changing news in all of the world. My seminary professor paraphrased Paul's prayer for the Colossians in a way that I just found was so helpful. I remember when we were studying it, he said this. He says, we have prayed that God would empower you to be men and women who would rise to the occasion of really robustly understanding Christian theology and engaging the culture with it for your own good, for the glory of God, and for the good of those who kneel to hear the gospel still. You see, that's what Paul wanted the gospel to motivate these people for. He wanted the gospel to motivate them to rise to the occasion. 
and to robustly understand the truths of God's word and the truths about the gospel and apply it to their lives and apply it to the context of the culture that they found themselves in. And that's been my prayer as well for us as we begin to study this word. That God would empower us at River City to be men and women who would rise to the occasion of really robustly understanding the truths of God's word and the truths of the gospel and engaging our culture in such a way that it would be good news to them for our good, for the glory of God, and for the good of those who still need to hear the gospel. And the truth is, is that if we are going to be that kind of people, if we're going to be a people who rise to that occasion, empowered by God's Spirit, to robustly understand the truths of God's Word and to contextualize it to, into the culture that we live in, then we're going to need, uh, I think, three things. One, we're going to need to be open to the correcting of our thinking through God's Word. I opened by saying that one of the worst things that we could do is believe that this letter was written for someone else. The spirit of the age was seeping into the the church and the young believers in the church in Colossae. And if you don't think that the spirit of the age that we live in has seeped into our thinking about how we view God and his word and his people, you 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 are blind. And the truth is that we need God's gracious illumination. We need his spirit, the one who reveals the truth into our hearts so that we might see the blind spots, the ways that the spirit of our age has seeped into the way that we think about God's word and the way that we think about who God is and the way that we think about what is true and right and good. We need the spirit of God to to speak that into us and to reveal that to us. And we need God as well to increase our understanding of who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. You see, the only way that we learn how to contextualize, the only way that we learn how to be God's people in the world in such a way that we are in the world but not of it, the only way that that happens is when we treasure and enjoy Jesus and the gospel. When that's the thing that informs and transforms everything about who we are. And so we've got to understand how the gospel changes us and how it speaks into every area of our lives. And at River City, we talk about the idea of being a gospel-fluent people. And it's the idea that the gospel is the language of the followers of Jesus. And we need to learn how to speak the truths of the gospel. We need to see how it applies to every area of our lives. And the only way that that happens is if God graciously reveals those things to us. And so if we're going to be God's people who robustly understand our theology and robustly understand what is true and rise to the occasion of living that out in our culture and speaking it into our culture, we're going to need God to reveal our blind spots. We're going to need Him to reveal to us the good news about the gospel and all of the ways it speaks into our lives. And lastly, and certainly not least, we are going to need His strength in us. That's why Paul prays about that. Paul prays, pray that every day God would fill you with His power. The reason why Paul prays that is because he knows you don't have it. You don't have what you need on your own. You don't have the endurance. You don't have the patience. You don't have the wisdom. You don't have the knowledge. You don't have the winsomeness. You do not have what you need to be God's people without the Spirit of God empowering you to be his people. That is true of me. It is true of you. It is true of everyone. And so the invitation, if we're going to be God's people living in the world, not of it, but sent into it as his good news people, We're going to need his power in us. And what we celebrate in communion every week is that 
we have that power in and through the person and the work of Jesus. That God has given us all we need to know him, to love him, to live for him. That God has given us everything we need in the person and the work of Jesus. And so what we celebrate is that God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his people. That God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. That God has brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the son that he loves All of that through the person and the work of Jesus. And when we take communion, what we're doing is we're remembering that Jesus' body was broken for us as he lived the life that we should have lived. And when we drink the cup, what we're remembering is that Jesus' blood was shed for us as he died the death that we should have died. All of that so that on the cross we might trade places with him and what we might get is right relationship with God. And so when you take communion, that's what we're celebrating that we were unqualified and God qualified us, that we were in slavery and God rescued us, that we were stuck and condemned in sin, but God calls us his sons and his daughters. And so we celebrate that every week in communion. Communion doesn't make us right with God. It doesn't change our status or our standing with him. Only receiving God's grace by faith in Jesus does that. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember and and to worship God. And to remind ourselves of our submission to him as our, as our Savior, as our Lord, and as our King. And so we celebrate the good news about the gospel, that we were unqualified to be God's people, but he qualified us. That we were in slavery to sin, but God has rescued us. That we were condemned as mutinous rebels, but God now calls us his sons and daughters who are dearly loved. All of that. Every part because of the person and the work of Jesus. At River City, every church does communion differently. For us, we have communion at the tables in the back. There's one on the left and one on the right. And whenever you're ready during our time of musical worship, you just go back and you dip the bread in the juice. Communion is between you and God, so no one's going to be dismissing you. You just go whenever you are ready. You don't need to be a member here, but you do need to belong to Jesus. Otherwise, it's just a spiritual act. Rather, for us, it is a remembrance of the good news about the gospel. Let it fuel your love for the Lord. Let it be a reminder of how much you needed him and how greatly he met your need. We pray all these things so that God might cause us to live as his people and be his people in the world. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for you. We are so thankful for our time together this morning in our new space, in this new building. We recognize that that is from you. God, but we, uh, we, just, we just proclaim, we just remember that the church is not this building. The church is your people. And so we ask that you would cause us to be your people who robustly rise to the occasion of robustly understanding the truths about who you are and all that you've done and applying it to the context of our world and our culture so that people might come to know and love and follow and serve you, Jesus. That you would receive all of the glory for that and that we would grow and it would be for our good. And so, God, we just ask that you would open our blind eyes to the ways that the spirit of our age has seeped into our thinking you'd correct us, that you would train us, that you would do that gently. We pray as well that you would uh, cause us to understand the gospel more and more and more so that we would love you and live for you every day. We pray, Jesus, that you would fill us with your power. We need you. We do not have what we need to be your people without you. 
And so we ask that you would for our good, for your glory, and so that people might come to know and love and follow you in our city. In your good name we pray these things. Amen.